Let's get started this morning and open with a word of prayer today. And uh, as we do, asking the Lord to bless our time together this morning as we worship and praise Him. And uh, congratulations, you made it on time, on time change Sunday morning. I saw this week that uh, I guess there's ideas to vote to abolish time change forever. And depending on how you feel about that or which one you want it to land in, but for now, we've moved forward an hour, and so congratulations on being here on time on Time Change Morning. Let's ask the Lord to help us today. Lord, thank you for your grace and your love to us. Um, we humbly come before you today, and we um, ask that you would bless our efforts. Our efforts do nothing to earn merit in front of you. Um, they don't change our standing before you, and yet you have given us the responsibility and the privilege to serve you, to worship you, to lift high your holy name. And so may we not take it for granted today. May you clear from our minds uh, the shadows and blurs and distractions of our lives, and may for a moment you open us up our, by your Spirit to see clearly uh, and in an evident way your world and your universe in the way that you have created it to be and how one day you will make all things right and all things new. Anchor us again this morning to that hope um, that if we lay aside our own desires and if we uh, give our lives to you, that you in turn reward. Uh, though we do not deserve, just as salvation, we do not deserve it, we uh, thank you for it. And so we pray that this morning you'd fill us with your spirit as we sing, as we pray, and may you heal our hearts from even the damages of the week, and may you do it by uh, your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And only one, but we're glad that he's offered it to us, aren't you? Choir, you can be seated for just a moment, and if you have your bulletin this morning, you can take a look at it, and I'll draw your attention to a couple things about uh, this morning's, uh, about the next couple weeks of events here at our church, and you see some things coming up at our men's prayer meeting this morning, and ask the Lord to bless our services today, and we're continuing that, it's kind of a new thing, and so if you can be here, we start about 940 back in the chapel and uh, just spending some time in prayer asking God to work in us and grow us as a church spiritually and physically as well. And then you see this uh, Saturday, or excuse me, coming up March 18th, um, the church work day, that is this Saturday, I've got my weeks confused, church work day and lunch. And there's a number of things, pro a few small projects, nothing major that we're working on, but um, some touch-up paint, some organizing material, a few things around the building to help us kind of also prepare and set out some things for hosting ODAX the next week. It'll alleviate some uh, work on our staff throughout the next week as well, so that'll be a big help. And there's something that anybody can do, so if you can be here that day, uh, we can find something for you, and that'll be at 9 o'clock. It goes from 9, and at noon, right at noon, we'll end with lunch. We'll provide that for anybody who's able to help, and that's this coming uh, Saturday as we kind of uh, have a spring cleaning and uh, some lawn work, that kind of thing as well. Then you see next Sunday, next Sunday evening, we're going to have a church meeting. It's 
uh, not a formal business meeting in the sense that uh, we won't be vote. There's no voting action on it. But some of you know our church incorporated last year, and as part of that articles of incorporation, we need to have a church meeting in March to tell what is stated as the state of the church. It's just going to be a simple meeting to inform members about the recent news. This particular meeting will. A lot of it will be about that incorporation process and, and how it's completed and what that means and transfer of property. Just update you on some of those things and financially. Uh, just a short meeting. We're going to do it right before our adult classes and kids clubs next week. So uh, anyone is welcome to uh, come and attend. You can bring your kids. Uh, we will make sure that we are dismissed in time for those adult groups and those kids clubs as well. But that is uh, next Sunday uh, evening at 440, just a few minutes before evening classes. And then we'll announce that next Sunday morning as well. And then the other big event that you see there in March, uh, March is sort of our service month. We serve outward in a number of different ways. And we're hosting this fine art competition that we've hosted for a number of years here at the church and school. And uh, we'll need help in a number of ways. Many of you are already signed up to help with set up and food, the hospitality room on the day before, day of, and day after even, and so we're thankful for that. Uh, you see there the judge's hospitality room. Uh, we provide food. There's volunteer judges from all over the state that come to be a part of it for uh, these school students and teenagers, and uh, so we provide uh, kind of a lunch meal for them, a little bit of breakfast food as well, and there's a sign-up sheet back at the Welcome Center that tells some things that uh, you could bring. We just sort of do that as a volunteer basis to be able to help provide uh, for those that want to take part of it. And you see uh, the Museum of the Bible trip, that is a Monday. Uh, you see, I know that you say, well, I'm not off on Monday. We're going to do a couple of these. It's easier uh, to take smaller groups. And so uh, those of you that can go the April 3rd, I'll let you a little, a little bit more information about that next week and the weeks after. And we'll have a sign-up sheet and a number of things uh, for that. Uh, but that is coming up uh, there that first Monday in April uh, as well. All right. Uh, stand if you would. We're going to sing. If you need the notes there, they're in your bulletin. If you want to look at the music, if not, it'll be on the screen. And we declare the mighty fortress that is our God. Amen. And let's sing and worship the Lord today. Amen. Take your Bible this morning, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 16. And I thought Mr. Young did a good job leading the music today because we made him do it without a microphone and uh, move some things around, our ODAX preparation, different things. And I know the elementary was practicing on Friday and had a chapel service in here. We moved the pulpit around, but evidently it is not working at the moment. We'll get that sorted and taken care of. In fact, Brother Young, would you mind making sure Miss Kassira has a microphone she can hold in a moment? And that way we won't make... Well, we'll be nice to the ladies. We won't make her sing without a microphone this morning. Uh, but if you would, Matthew chapter 16, and um, we'll look down in verse number 21 in just a moment. Uh, just a, a quick moment of uh, church business, if you would. We want to welcome another family into the membership of our church. If I could have uh, Thomas and Tia Lunsford, you can kind of, it's holding the baby. I'll let you kind of wave at us this morning. They're over here in the corner and... The Lunsfords came a couple weeks ago and uh, came into the member of our, membership of our church joining by uh, statement of faith, and we're excited to have uh, both of them joining us, Thomas and Tia, and then uh, their kids, Thomas Jr. 
and Taryn. And Taryn is the highlight of our evening adult class quite often. She comes in and uh, gives us all a smile. And if you haven't met them, I encourage you to do so. If you are uh, glad that they're coming into the membership of our church, let it be known by saying amen this morning. And we are glad. We're thrilled that they're um, come to be a part of our uh, church family uh, with us today. If you would, Matthew chapter 16, verse number 21. <clears throat> Matthew 16, verse number 21. It says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, talking about Jesus, began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels." And then he shall, receive, he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's the Lord to help us this morning. An encouraging passage and one that we will need to pay close attention to, primarily to obey. It's one we often uh, turn aside from, and so let's... Uh, give our hearts to the Lord this morning. Father, thank you for your word. And we ask you now, before we study, that you would teach us, that you would fill us with your spirit, give us and equip us with eyes, spiritual eyes, to see the world the way that you have described for us in your word, ears to hear as your spirit speaks to us about these things. And we pray that you would guide and direct and work in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. As you find your place there in Matthew once more, Matthew 16, and I'm going to finish out the chapter. And in a moment we'll review kind of where we were last week, stepping into uh, this week. Before I do, I give you a quick story, an illustration. Uh, it was the summer, I believe, of 2006, and uh, I would have been about, oh, I guess I would have maybe about 19 years old, and uh, I stepped into a large room, very kind of unsure uh, if I should go in there. Something felt kind of off about it. And uh, when I stepped inside, there was a loud scream and a bang, and then the room went dark. It was a pretty odd sensation or moment. And kind of stepped into another room, and uh, in that room there was a, 
a large wheel that was um, mounted on the wall and stretched and tied across that wheel was a lifeless body of a man as though it had been mangled by the pressure and the twisting. And across the room from that, there was two people strung upside down by their feet, unconscious and unable to breathe. Down a hall, we ran quickly and uh, walked into another room that was full of blades and swords that were splattered with blood and evidence of violence was on the floor. This is a true story. I'm not, not, some of you are looking at me like, where's the, I'm not making this up. Violence kind of evidenced on the floor and the walls. There was a guillotine-like device in the side. I thought, who in the world? What kind of monster? There's a chair that was there in the corner where it had straps and someone had obviously been tortured in some way. Or uh, There was a chair of nails, an iron barrel over burnt coals that where a fire had been made. It was apparent that someone had been attempted to be tortured or burned alive. And at this point in this morning's sermon, I should probably let you know, again, this is a true story. It's a real place. But I should probably clarify, it was in St. Augustine, and it was a museum that focused on medieval history. This particular section focused on torture devices. And so, no, I am not a psychopath. Um, It was an informative place to be. It's still there if you want to do that kind of thing on vacation and you're twisted like I, then you can go. It's still there in St. Augustine, Florida. You think, why in the world did you tell us those things? Because the odd and awkward and even bristling feeling that you had hearing about someone else's demise for a moment and trying to figure out if I was serious or if I was joking, uh, if I am demented or if I'm just weird, you know, that, that moment that you may have just had there as I described some of those things. And I could go into further detail, but it might really actually scare some of you as to my mental state. I'm just telling you, I went to a museum and that's what was there. But that odd sensation you may have had with me describing that would have been a very similar and awkward and odd moment for the dis- disciples as Jesus begins to teach in this particular passage this morning. In fact, in verse number 24, look there if you would, where it says, Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. Now for us as Christians, that phrase is not jarring. It's not that shocking. To hear someone speak of a cross is not that unusual. And even the phrase take up your cross and follow me, is not that controversial. In our minds, we have become used to it. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the triumphant, glorious sacrifice, but then raising to new life that he displayed for us, has changed our view and vision of the cross. Crosses are in churches. They, we have them on the pulpit. We have them throughout the building. You go to any church in America, many different churches have them. They're uh, monuments placed in different places throughout the world. We use it to signify at a, a gravesite. Why else? Why would you put a cross on a tombstone? That person didn't die in that manner, but we tend to put crosses on a gravestone because it is a symbol of, yes, this represents death, The person here is dead, yet there is hope that they live again in 
Christ. And so for us, the cross, symbol of the cross, has totally changed. And we are thankful for that. But for a moment this morning, what I want you to do is try to enter into what the disciples were feeling and sensing in the moment as Jesus is speaking to them. Remember uh, the last couple of weeks we've talked about, we tried to set the setting with Tyre and Sidon and how important that was to understand that, to get Jesus' confirm, uh, conversation with that woman. Then last week we looked at the background of the area that he was at at Caesarea Philippi and why that was so significant to Jesus' conversation about the rock and the stone and establishing his kingdom in the midst of the world's kingdom and how important that was. And just as those backgrounds were important for us the last few weeks, this morning I think it's important for us to sort of let ourselves enter in for a moment. And in the same way that it would be odd if I stood here this morning and explained various manners of execution and death, horrific, violent endings to people's lives, we would be uncomfortable. We should be uncomfortable with that. It would make us feel odd if I walked into the service today and said, Church, I have a, a vision from the Lord. You should all follow me. Here's this poison. And if you want to follow an example of a pastor, take this and drink it. There are people, obviously, that have done that. It's not what we're going to call you to, but as odd and bristling as that moment should be for our lives, Jesus speaking to these disciples, his words would have been just as shocking to them. Because the manner and the thing in which he's speaking is a mode of execution. Not even one that the Jews were familiar with or in a sense of their history. This was a Roman manner of execution. And so there's two sides to this. Jesus is speaking. This would have brought to the disciples' mind the oppression that is on them by Rome. That Rome conquers its enemies and demands compliance or else there is death by a very public gruesome manner so in their minds it would speak to the oppression that they were under but it would also speak to the the evident end of life death it would have been a very controversial thought in their mind and yet here he is saying if you want to follow me you are going to have to take up a cross and you're going to have to follow me in that way why is this so dramatic why is this such a a big moment in the scripture in particular in matthew's gospel. Last week we looked at verses 13 down through verse 20 where Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And remember the reply of the men or the people, the crowds, they well they say you're John the Baptist, sort of reincarnate. You must be the forerunner for the Messiah. They say you're Isaiah. They say you're Jeremiah, meaning you're the forerunner for the Messiah. You're the one that's going to come and sort of set the spirit of people right before the, before the Messiah of God comes and establishes a physical kingdom on this earth. Why had people started to drift away from Christ and not see him as the Messiah, but rather they saw him as a forerunner to the Messiah because he was not the Messiah that they wanted. He was not going to do what they had hoped for. He was not going to change their lives in a way that they had expected. And so they turned away from him. Then Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And remember, Peter's dramatic 
climactic response. We say that you are the Messiah, the Christ. You're the very Son of the living God. And how powerful that must have been in a place like Caesarea Philippi, temples built to false gods, a seat of the government that had taken over the world. And yet he says, your kingdom, you're the king. You're the one that is coming. And at that moment, seemingly with that conversation, the book of Matthew shifts. Matthew has presented Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the King of the world, the coming one, the the very Son of God. He has presented that in Jesus' teachings. He's presented it in Jesus' miracles. He's presented it in Jesus' calling for His disciples. And then He's shown Jesus, as He continued to teach, He changed His teaching sort of to parables to clarify for those that believed. And then He went a little further. He calls them even more deeply, and yet some reject and some come. And it just shows that back and forth and back and forth. Now Jesus has clearly revealed who He is, and His disciples Some of them, in some manner or way, have grasped, this is the Messiah. Now the book shifts, and notice in verse 21 how it states it. From that time, which time? From the time that Jesus has finished these conversations with the woman at Tyre and Sidon, with the Pharisees, and then with Simon Peter and his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, from that moment on, Jesus begins to do what? to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem. Notice the specifics. Suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Jesus changes. He is no longer speaking in a veiled way. He is no longer talking to his disciples, the crowds, or the followers. He's no longer sort of saying, kind of alluding to it. He's not speaking by parable. It says he sits down with his disciples and the, the tone or uh, if, if you would, the mode of speaking that he uses here, the tense of the verbs that he uses here kind of portray that he's doing this over and over. He didn't just tell them once. It says from then on, this was the focus of his conversation and teaching to his disciples. Most likely, this is what they spoke about most often. And so Jesus, now from this point to the end of the book of Matthew, his key focus with his disciples is, I'm going to Jerusalem. The religious leaders that many have trusted are going to take me. There's going to be conflict. I'm going to suffer at their hands, and I'm going to die at their hands. But then he also gives them this promise that he's going to be raised, and even gives specifics, on the third day. So what is Jesus doing? He begins to preach the gospel in a very specific manner to them. But I want you to notice as we get started this morning, we're going to look at mainly verses 24 down through verse 28. But I want you to notice for a moment sort of what prompts this conversation. That's very important in Scripture, and particularly in the Gospels. What prompts Jesus' conversation with people? And notice what prompts Jesus. This is dramatic. Verse 24 through verse 28. I mean, they are a core aspect of our Christian faith. Take up your cross. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to give your life to Him. It is not just that He's giving His life for you and you receive. It is that, yes, you've received the grace of God, but you also give your life to the Savior. I mean, this is big language, verse 24 through verse 28. But notice what prompts it. Peter then took him. So Jesus starts to tell him, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to meet the, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees. They're going to torture me. They're going to kill me. And I think 
that Jesus may have even been as specific to tell them how. This is sort of a summary verse in verse 21, but notice he even explains who, the elders, the chief priests. And I think that's why he alludes to the actual cross in verse number 24. But notice, he tells them, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to die, but I'm going to raise again on the third day. Then Peter takes him, verse 22, Peter took him, began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. You can kind of see Peter's body language, that he calls Jesus to his side. He hooks him on the arm and kind of pulls him away. He puts his arms on his shoulders and makes eye contact. Jesus, what are you talking about? This is not going to happen. Have you seen us? you got Simon the Zealot who may have military training. We're rough fishermen. If We're not in Jerusalem right now. They're in still in Caesarea Philippi. If you think that in Jerusalem they're going to kill you, we just won't go there. And if we do go there and they try to kill you, we will stop you. In other texts and other places of the Gospels, Peter even goes as far as to say, I will die before that ever happens. I will die for you rather than you dying for me. And we look at this passage and we kind of commend Peter's zeal. Remember, Peter is the one who has just said, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And when you attach to that statement, no, Lord, we'll never let you die. That will not happen. You can kind of sense and see Peter's good intentions. But what I want you to notice is that Jesus does not reward or commend Peter's intentions. He scolds Peter's heart. Because at the core, though Peter's intentions seemed good... Though it seemed like Peter just wants to protect Jesus, or so we think, he seems like he cares about Jesus. What Peter actually cares about protecting is not the Jesus that Jesus is revealing. Peter wants to protect the Jesus that Peter thinks should be the way that he is. He reveals what Pe- he, he wants to protect what Peter wants in a Messiah. He wants to protect Jesus' chance to be the king to rule and to reign with him. And so Peter, though his intentions may seem good, notice Jesus' language in verse 23. He turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. I want you to know, sometimes we get caught up on intentions. And sometimes we excuse our mistakes or we excuse the problems or even sins of others because we are judging their intent. And that works for us in a human and limited scope where we do not always know the heart and we don't always, aren't always able to assign to something true, pure intent where we are limited in how we can read people. There is a way that reading intent can be good for us. But for a God who knows every aspect of every part of our being, he is not distracted by our intentions. His intentions seem loving. If you've been here on Wednesday nights, you've been studying in 2 John and 3 John the last few weeks, and the, the fact that Jesus teaches continually to combine love and truth together. Because love without truth produces nothing. It, it leads to chaos. Yet truth without love leads to a demeaning type of uh, bigotry, ruling over one another. And so he says love and truth. And so 
Jesus here is not distracted by the loving intentions that Peter has because Peter is standing against the truth. He takes what Jesus has said. Jesus says, well, here's God's plan. I need to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again on the third day. And Peter says, no, you're not. And though his intentions are good, it would seem, and though they are loving, they stand against and contradict what God says needs to happen. This is a matter of authority. Jesus, because he's the Son of God, God decides what truth is. It is not left for us to bargain. This can be applied in so many areas of life, but if God's word tells us that something is true and we veer from that, no matter our intent, if it, it comes up or butts against the commands and truth of Scripture, God does not judge by our intent. He judges by His truth. And so notice what He says. Get thee behind me, Satan. He's just told Peter, Peter, you're a rock. You're a stone. And I'm going to build a church, and you're going to be a part of that. And all the things that he knew that Peter would be a part of, kind of bringing an opening for the early church as he would open the gospel for at Pentecost, and the church would sort of be established and filled with the Spirit. He would open eventually sort of the way to the Gentiles, and God would clarify some things in his mind. He knew all those things would be true of Peter, but in this moment he goes from calling him a rock that would be a, a part of the foundation or that would be a part of the church, and then he calls him Satan. What is it in these few verses that Jesus has identified what is it that can take someone from being this instrument of God to a tool of Satan? Jesus identifies at the end of verse 23. He says, Thou art an offense to me. The word offense there literally means a stone of stumbling, a stumbling block. You're something for me to have to get over. Instead of supporting Jesus and his mission and lifting it up, Peter then stands, he says, you're standing in the way of this. But notice the last couple phrases. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. He knows Peter's heart's heart. He knows what's going on in Peter's mind. And he's going to refine Peter. He's going to change Peter. He's going to use Peter to do great things. But before he can do that, Jesus knows that he must bring about a conflict in Peter's own life and his own heart. That Peter's going to have to come to the place that he sees things clearly. That word savor means literally to, to relish or to dwell or to think on. You relish, you savor. Peter, we, we kind of made a play on words for your title there. You, you ever heard savor the moment? Jesus is trying to teach Peter savor more than the moment. Don't live for right just right now. And that's what introduces verse 28, 24 down through verse 28, where he says, take up your cross, follow me. If a man's going to lose his life, he'll find it. If a man seeks to gain his life and keep it, he'll lose it. If uh, he gains the whole world but loses his own soul, he's speaking of value. But he introduces it all by looking at Peter and saying, Peter, here's your problem. Your intentions may be good. Your desire may be right. Your passion might be full. Your, your, your temper, your, your ability, your desire to help the Savior might be fiery. But here is your problem, Peter. You think on and relish and love and savor 
not God's plan, God's way, and God's things, but mankind's, this world, this moment, and this time. And so with that in our minds, with the scolding rebuke in which he tells Peter, Peter, you are not focused on God. You are focused on self. Now, he doesn't elaborate. We don't know if that means that Peter's, again, just still thinking Jesus is going to have a physical kingdom. He's going to take over Herod. He's going to take over Philip the Tetrarch. He's going to rule and reign. He's going to put Rome down, and we're going to get like, I'm going to take Philip, if he's still in Caesarea Philippi, I'm going to take that little palace, and I'm going to, Jesus will rule from Jerusalem, wherever he's going to rule from. I'm going to get to rule. He's thinking about the here and the now. He's thinking about vengeance. He's thinking about conquering. He's thinking about victory. He wants to see the Savior glorified, yet he wants to see it happen by his own mind and his own way and his own mentality. And Jesus says, you can't be my disciple if you're not focused on my will and my way. And notice in verse 24, and let's walk through the passage. He, identify, he, he points out three things. What does it look like to declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior? Peter has said that with his mouth. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet Jesus says, you say that, but your life doesn't reflect that because of your heart's desires. So what does it look like for someone that believes that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? What does it look like for someone to give themselves to Him? Notice what Jesus says in verse 24. Then Jesus said to His disciples, He turns, instead of just Peter, He's addressing the group. And there's probably more than just the twelve there. We'll see that in a moment, I think. But He turns and He says to His disciples, notice this phrase, If any man will come after Me, And I want you to, uh, this is a glorious thing. Because God did not establish his church on just 12 or 11 men or people. He did not give power and preeminence to any person but Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the authority of our lives. Jesus rules and reigns. He decides what is truth and He decides what we should obey. And that is glorious. No one else sets the standard. No one else has the authority. And so here He says, if any person, any man, any church member, if you would say it that way, any Christian, any believer. Notice, he does not limit it to length of time believing. You know, all of his disciples he's called within the last two or three years, they're technically kind of young Christians, if you would view it that way. He doesn't limit it to their age. These are very young men. He doesn't say if you're under a certain age or if you're over a certain age. He, he doesn't say if you have a certain ability or you don't have a certain ability. He doesn't say if you have certain tendencies and characteristics or if you don't have them. He says, if any man wants to come after me. Now, he's just looked at Peter and said, Peter, you're a rock. And I'm going to use some of what you are to help establish my church. And we know that he calls his disciples in a special way. Yet then he turns to them and he says, if you really want to come after me, I will allow any man to come after me. But there's a few things that he points out that are required. We've given you kind of the three key words for the day are identity, passion, and perspective. And that's what Jesus points out in the following, in the last few verses. He points out that a disciple of Christ, a real follower of Jesus, takes on Jesus' identity, takes on Jesus' passions, and he views things from Jesus' perspective. 
And so let's look to God's Word this morning and be challenged ourselves and be convicted if any of ours have misaligned. And let's start with number one in verse 24, identity. Jesus' followers, His real followers, have changed identities. The cross is about identity. Notice what it says in verse 24. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cross declares who we are. Jesus is going to die on the cross, which establishes what? It's a totally different identity than any king that had ever established any kingdom on earth and still to this day. No king establishes a kingdom by dying unless that king is the son of God and has the power to live forever. No one says, I'm going to establish and reign and rule. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to die on behalf of the people of my kingdom. I'm going to allow myself to be murdered, and that will give me authority. No one else does that. And those disciples don't understand in this moment. To them, this is as controversial and bristling as for me to talk about methods of death to introduce our sermon this morning. They're saying, what in the world is he talking about? Take up the cross. It speaks to identity. That Jesus is God, that the Messiah came not in the form of a ruling king, but in the form first of a servant. That he laid aside aspects of his deity and was made in the likeness of men. If you think of it this way, he took off some things and put on other things. And he establishes this pattern to be the same for us. He takes off certain aspects of his deity. He comes in the form of a human body. He deals with the human body in the same way that you and I did. He faces temptations like you and I did. He can suffer pain. He can die. He can, his life, his living, breathing body can die and come to an end. And he takes off certain aspects of his deity. Self-denial, if you would. He denies a part of who he is to become mankind as God. He sets it aside, and yet he takes on other things. Namely, in this passage, the ability to die on behalf of others. Jesus had not sinned. He deserved no wages of death. The punishment for sin did not apply to him because he was sinless, and yet he took it on. And so what do we have in the cross? Notice Jesus calls us to these two things, to self-denial and Christ portrayal. He says first in verse 24, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. The book of Luke actually adds a word to that. It says let him, or it adds a word to it. It says take up his cross daily. It's a daily self-denial. But then notice it's a Christ portrayal. It's denying aspects of who I am, which is what Jesus did for me. It's denying aspects of who I am, except instead of denying parts of deity and godship, I deny sin and evil and the destruction that it has brought in my life. I set those things aside and take on what Christ offers me. I portray His life, not my own. We are called to be like Him. We are called to take on His nature, to take on His likeness. And what we see in Jesus, we should seek to take on in ourselves. He says, take up His cross and notice this, follow me. Why? Because Jesus took up a cross also. 
So there should be no limit to our Christ-likeness. This is not calling us to go out all this morning and die physically by this evening. But what this is calling us to is that when I wake up in the morning, there is no limit to Christ-likeness in my life. There should be no limit to how much I will be like Him, even to the place of death for the glory of God. And so he says, self-denial, but Christ portrayal. And if, in fact, his disciples may have rubbed against this the wrong way. I, we don't want to identify with the cross, but think about what the cross actually declares. The, cro- the cross declares in our identity that we are sinful, that our sin is massive, it is overwhelming, it is disturbing, and it is wrong. Our sin is beyond our ability to fix. The cross where Jesus died says that we will never be accepted by God. His sacrifice is perfect and sinless. Mine can never be. Even my giving of my life in death is not enough to find forgiveness of sins. So the cross declares the wickedness of my heart, but it also declares this, the value and love that God has assigned to my soul. Where else would you want to take your identity? Sometimes we don't want the cross because of the difficulty that it brings. But if we see the cross for the glory that Jesus did, this is how I make them my people. The cross not only declares our sin, but it declares God's love for us. And so because of that, because of his love, we're willing to become fools for Christ, if you would to change our identity, who we are as people. We no longer chase after fame and glory and riches and comfort. We no longer have to have the things of the moment of this world. We can follow after Christ and Christ alone. Why? Notice the second thing, because of the passion. Because passions change. When identity changes, passions change. Verse 25, for whosoever will will save his life shall lose it, Whosoever shall lo- will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is it a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus here speaks about passion. A moment ago he spoke about Peter. He says, you don't savor the things of God. You savor the things of man. Following Christ is letting go of what I naturally want to hold on to. And it is following the God that has displayed His love for me. Notice, this says, those who are willing, willingly give their physical life to Christ find true life in Him. Their passion changes. Notice, it says, whosoever shall say, will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus teaches the upside-down nature of His kingdom. Someone that loves me more than his own life will find life eternal, fulfilling, and satisfying. But someone who clings to life and won't let go for me ultimately will lose all of that. We take nothing with us, and yet we pursue all the stuff that ultimately will not matter. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have jobs. Doesn't mean we shouldn't earn money. Doesn't mean we shouldn't use our influence. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have families. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have leisure and enjoyment and pleasures in this life and in this world. It doesn't mean we deny all those things. God created this world for us to enjoy. 
Read Genesis 1 and 2 and the description that is given of how God made the earth and how he placed mankind into it. He did not put us here to be miserable. So it is not saying live your life and be miserable and you'll eventually have more joy. No, but it is saying don't cling to the things that you have already lost. Because of our sin, we are separated from Christ. We're separated in that way without God, except for in salvation. It's our only hope. And sometimes we cling to the things that we already have that we're going to lose, rather than chasing after what God has promised that we will never lose. What do we focus on most? What is our passion for? What are we driven by? Christianity in the modern world, in America, oh, really throughout the world, but in modern day, Christianity has become an accessory. It's become a part of a resume. It's become a part of who we are. Jesus says, if you will lose your identity and follow after me, become a little Christ and follow after me, you will gain so much more. You say, well, I love Jesus, but... And you fill in the blank. And it's not just riches. It's so many things. You say, I have a soul. Jesus is good. Yes, God is judge. But right now, an affair is pretty enjoyable. Riches and possession make me feel secure. Freedom for my schedule, my decisions, my relationship is more important for me in this moment. So I stiff arm God's body and his people. For the moment, my rage and my anger feels good when I unleash my temper to get things accomplished. For the moment, my sense of pride enables me and it makes me feel satisfied when I put others down and mistreat them. When I speak ill of my common sister or brother in Christ, when I demean them in some way, it satisfies me. It makes me feel like I should be. The king lifted up above others. For the moment, it's nice to have my friend's ear with my, when I lie and gossip or in the central part of their attention or story, I bear false witness against others. For the moment, my bitterness fueled by my opinion and my desire to hold out a little longer feels better than the humility that it takes to restore relationship. You see, we have a bigger problem with this than we realize where we live for the moment and not the more that Jesus is pointing to. Today feels so good that I cannot see tomorrow. Allie was up last night for a long time. Uh, time change thing, you know, in her mind, it's like, Ellie, it's 10 o'clock. No, it's 9 o'clock. Well, no, technically it's 10 o'clock. So we sat there and I was reading a little bit, doing some late night study, and I was reading a few comments on it and I was reading this passage of Scripture. I said, Ellie, let me, let me ask you this. It's actually a question I asked Lex a little earlier in the day. His answer was different. I said, Ellie, if I were to give you like a whole case of cotton candy, she loves sugar like all kids. If I give you a whole case of cotton candy, and I said, you can have this right now. It's, I don't know, $20 in cotton candy. Or I said, here's $1,000. You can do anything you want with it. You can go anywhere you want. Let's make it more. And I think I even upped it. Let's say $10,000. You can go on any trip. You can do any sort of club. You can buy a toy. You can buy whatever you want. You can have it all. But here's the thing. You cannot have it until you're 10 years old. Do you want the case of cotton candy right now? Or are you going to wait? Now, she said, that's worth way more. I'll wait. 
and have the better. Those, those, she, she said it this way. Those other things sound way better than cotton candy. Now, I asked Lex the same question. Lex, you can have cotton candy right now. And he was convinced I had it. I actually felt bad. <laughs> oh, let me clarify. I do not have cotton candy. But which one do you want? Do you want that? Or I'll give you $100. You can buy a toy or whatever you want. You can buy a whole bucket of cotton candy, but, I, but you can't have it until next year. Where's the cotton candy? Bring it to me now. We as Christians, really the world as sinners, but we as Christians as well, we look at the cotton candy fluff of our day and we cannot or we refuse to see what is coming down the road. The reward that Jesus promises when our eyes and our minds are focused on Him. But for now, my bitterness, my anger, my lust, my greed, my desire, my comfort, it all tastes so good. I know it's going to be gone in a moment. We'll figure all that out when we get there. Jesus teaches the opposite. Forget what lasts for a moment. Chase after what lasts forever. Then he speaks of that in verse 26. Notice this. What shall profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own, notice the phrase, soul. He, He speaks to the deeper part of man. Why? Because Jesus knows that we were created to enjoy his blessings of this world and of his creation for far longer than a few days. Your body can enjoy this world for a few years, a few days, a few thousand days. You live to be 80, and some of you may argue and get to a certain age or certain aspects of things that you can't enjoy anymore or whatever it may be, but you just say, let's say you had the most blissful life you could live from the birth to the tomb, and you live for 80 years. That's a fraction of a thought, of a fragment, of a moment of eternity. It doesn't even compare. And he says, you're so focused on the part that you can only enjoy for a moment. Think about it. You you say, well, I enjoy certain things that are sinful. I enjoy certain yearnings. There are certain things that overwhelm my heart because of my physical nature. Jesus promises that even that part of you is only going to last for a moment. Your capacity to even enjoy sin will disappear when He creates you new and sanctifies you in a new body. So why live for it now? Why do we struggle Notice he goes further, and he puts the final thing, he puts it in perspective. Your identity changes, your passions change. And then here's how he solidifies it. He says, because you have to keep a proper perspective on what's going on in your life. See that on the back of your note section there this morning as we look at it. We have this vain imagination of what happiness on earth can be. But Jesus sees it clearly. And so he points out this perspective, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he shall, re- he shall reward every man according to his works. And it, and he, here's, here's what he does to solidify this. He says, look, if you want to you be my disciple, if you love me, you believe that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, change your identity, take up your cross, live differently than the rest of the world. Focus your passions on other things. 
Focus your passions on the glory of God. Enjoy now, yes, in the way that God gives you the ability to enjoy, but that cannot be your passion and your focus because he'll give you eternal joy and satisfaction in himself. And then he adds to it this perspective. He says, because the Son of Man is coming. In the glo- Notice this phrase, in the glory of his Father with his angels. He says, you're going to see me lifted up on a cross and die. And then I'm going to ascend to my Father. I'm going to resurrect and I'm going to go away from you. And it's going to seem like the last three years of your life that you've spent with me in the wilderness and in the desert by the Sea of Galilee in the storms, healing people, fighting with the Pharisees, rejected by some, accepted by others, all the emotions. You're going to feel like the last three years of your life have just vanished away and it's not worth what you've given me. But Jesus says in that moment, know that I am coming again, not on a cross, but in glory. Not to be the servant of all, but to be the ruler of all. Not to be placed with hands by someone else, but to rule by the power of my might when I come again. And here's what Jesus is emphasizing. I think you have it there in his notes. He assures them that one day it will be different than it appears right now. He will come in the glory of his Father, and then he will judge and reward the world as judge. I love this phrase that we should take Jesus as Savior now because he will be our judge one day soon. And we claim him as our Savior, but we don't want him to be our judge. And here Jesus solidifies, he says, keep the right perspective. You may look out at the world and say, look at all the stuff, look at all the things going on, look at who's winning that argument, look at who's winning that battle, look at who's winning that mindset, look at the sin that's overcoming. Why do we have to be the way that Jesus has called us to be when clearly that is not the way that overcomes the world? Jesus tells them, it may not feel like it for a moment, and even to death, remember he said, take up your cross, even to death, Even when you die and people can stand over your grave and say, this man was a fool. He lived his life for a myth. He'd got nothing in this world. No power, no glory, no riches. He wasted his life on something that will never happen. Even as people stand over your grave, assure and be known that I will return again. You will rise with me. I will avenge your sorrow and sadness. I will establish a kingdom of joy. Just don't live for this moment alone. Live for eternity. As we finish, I want you to think, what do we live most for? Try to cling to things. Relationships. Anger. We don't mimic who Jesus is. He gives them this final proof, and he says it's in verse 28. Verily I say unto you, there will be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, some people think that that means he's referring to John, the apostle, and that he's saying he's not going to die until he sees the revelation of Jesus. I think it's much more simple than this. He looks out and he says, some of you are not going to die until you see the coming of this kingdom. What is he talking about? You're going to see me raised from the dead. And now we have the testimony of his apostles, his disciples, his followers that saw him die and then saw him live. And he says, 
I'm telling you, follow me. That should be enough. But I'm going to give you something that will inspire you. And it is the fact that though I have lived on this earth and died at the hands of sinful men, I raised from the dead and I live forever. And if you follow me, you will have the same. And he calls us. Think about all the silliness and the things that we cling to in our lives. There's a man that became a millionaire. He worked very hard. Came from a poor family and worked all his life. His goal was to just become a millionaire. One day he finally became a millionaire and was so thrilled about it. He sat down with his best friend. He said, this is, I'm more proud of this than anything in my whole entire life. He said, when I die, I want you to bury me with a million dollars. And so he died and his wife came to his best friend and as they lowered his body into the grave, his wife turned to his best friend and said, did you put the million dollars in the casket with him? He said, yes, I wrote him a check. <laughs> as frivolous and silly as that illustration sounds, how silly is it that we wake up each day and we try to follow this prescription of having our best life now. <laughs> when Jesus has clearly said, live a consecrated life now, and I will give you the best life forever. Lord, thank you for your word, for your grace, for the clarity that you teach us. Help us Though we are discouraged, when we look around at times, we don't have what we want. Our relationships are not what we desire. People don't view us the way we want them to. We don't have the right respect, the influence. The world around us, if we really follow Jesus, looks at us as fools. The world rejects you. And yet you've called us to take up our cross again today and again tomorrow, and again the next day. Knowing that things may not look very different in this moment, but that one day they will look so different in eternity. Help us not to live for this moment. Help us as Christians to not fall into silly pits of sin. Because in that moment, our anger, our, our lust, our desires... Our wicked thinking tells us it'll be good just for a moment. God knows your deeper intentions, so He'll let it go. May we not abuse the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. Rather, may we stand as He stood so courageously, bravely, selflessly, sacrificially, and was hung to die for us. We stand and live for him. Forgive us of our failings. Help us to judge our lives by your truth. Because you are coming soon. We'll stand before you. May we please you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Stand if you would. We'll sing again the song we 
started with a few minutes ago, we run to Christ, regardless of what the world brings. There at your seat here at this altar, the Lord's worked in your heart. Let's commit these things to Him. Let's follow Him. Let's not just say He's the Christ, the Son of the living God, but let's live in a way that reflects that. Let's sing and declare by song this morning, and we'll be dismissed in a moment. He roars, but cannot harm. We're going to be dismissed, but as we are, we have been given a mission by Christ to follow Him and to be like Him. The only way we do that is to know Him, to be in His Word. So let's anchor ourselves in the Word this week and then follow what we learn of Jesus and declare Him to a lost world that is in need. I hope you'll be back tonight, adult groups and kids clubs, and you see there kind of where the rooms are. If you haven't been able to be with us the last couple weeks, and you see those there on the back, and I hope that you'll come and be a part of one of those adult groups and uh, studying God's Word and also fellowshipping and growing uh, together as well. One uh, closing request or prayer request. Many of you know um, the Minson family that was here a number of years ago. This is uh, this would be Rose Gillum's uh, son, her, his wife, uh, Mrs. Minson, passed away yesterday. Some of you remember uh, Stevie that went to school here. I was with the family for a good while yesterday. And so if you would uh, be in prayer for the Minson family and the loss uh, that they've experienced this week. Uh, let's be dismissed in prayer and ask the Lord to help us as a church uh, to glorify him. Uh, Brother